color the world and paint the town. In the beginning, God created light. The entire universe was energized and reverberating by his very presence. Light has all color and every single hue is in every single shaft of light. Darkness does not have color because darkness does not have light. It can't have color because it has no light. Darkness is darkness. Light showers objects with the entire spectrum of all color. But what we see, the pinks, the yellows, the blacks, the grays, the blues, the the greens, what we see is absolutely predicated not on the light that's shining upon it, but upon the very molecular makeup of the object itself. Whatever is inside of that object allows that color to be reflected. As God's light carrying all of his colors and all of his attributes shines on and in and through us, we are to become a true reflection of that. But what we reflect is completely and utterly dependent on the spiritual DNA and utter makeup within us. As his faith shines upon us, we have to reach out and grab it, pull it into our very innermost being and make it ours. If we don't, we can't reflect faith. We walk around reflecting doubt. When his hope shines upon us because he is hope, and as his hope shines upon us, if we do not reach out, and change and forsake our ways and reach out and grab who he is and bring it down deep into our uttermost being and rearrange everything inside of us to line up with his hope, we will never be able to reflect his hope. If as his love shines down on us and his love is evident and completely enveloped in his light, and as his love shines upon us, if we don't reach out and grab onto it and bring it into ourselves, rearranging everything within, letting go of animosity, letting go of of offense, letting go of everything around us, letting go and taking on his love, we will never, ever be able to reflect it. Left to ourselves in our original state, we can try, 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 try to be hope and love and peace and patience and everything that God is. We can try. It's almost like a rose bush taking a rose and pla- you know, taping it onto the, the stem. It'll die. It'll, it, it can't flourish because it's not being fed from within. We cannot reflect what's not inside of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if therefore, therefore if, no, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. God is constantly at work, reaching down, shining his light into you and wanting to rearrange if we would only yield to him. If we would only yield to him. 
Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says that now you are the light of the world. You are intended now to shine. Now we become light. Shining the very spectrum of his character and integrity into our families, into our communities, into our homes, into our work. It's so powerful. Chris told a story last week. It was so fun. And, and it's what we really are basing this whole thing off of, this whole campaign of Paint the Town. And it's the story of where the Paint the Town saying came from, and I find it extremely interesting. It was in the mid-1800s in a small town in, uh, in England where a, a young man, I can, I'm not even going to try to say his name, uh, but he was the marquee of the area. The marquee was the landowner, the baron, the, the big guy on, on the block. But, but this young man, he was known for, for his drunkenness and his, his mischievousness. And one night, he and his friends got drunk, and uh, they found a can of paint. It was red paint. And they went around the town that night while all the townspeople were sleeping, and they painted everything red. They painted the bridge red. Doors red, houses red, people red, apparently. There was somebody there. I don't know who it was. But they painted everything red. And when the town woke up, obviously the mischief makers had gone to bed. When the town woke up, it was very obvious that something had happened. Somebody had been there. They created quite a stir, quite a commotion. There was not one soul in that town that didn't know that those gentlemen were out and about the night before. It was quite a day when they woke up. Very interesting, though. Jesus kind of did something similar. He came on the scene about 30 to 33 AD. So, you know what, about 2,000 years ago. At that moment of time, the world was very, very, very dark. There was no concern for the sick or the feeble. There was no provision for the aged. There was no feeling for the mentally deranged. The political establishment at that time was only concerned about money and power and what they were going to have for dinner that night, basically, if you really read the, read the, um, the history books. The political establishment had no heart or mindset for the masses. The religious establishment kind of followed suit. They wanted to stay in the good graces of the the political establishment, so they didn't want to cause any waves. They didn't like the political establishment, but they they weren't wanting to make any waves. They didn't want to draw any attention to themselves. So the political establishment kind of went along with the flow. Now, there was a mindset, a philosophy that was huge about that time. It was called Stoicism. Have you ever heard of Stoicism? Stoicism kind of ruled the day in a lot of ways when Jesus came and walked on the earth. And and Stoicism said something like this, that all of this out here is, is a mistake. And to get involved in all of this out here is a mistake as well. And one of the ways that we get involved in all of this out here is to have feeling, is to like have something happen and get happy. 
if you get happy, it's, it's actually validating what's going on out here. And this isn't really going on. You know, come on. <laughs> this is truth. So stoicism and stoicism said that, you know, if, if you get hurt or something like that, you're, to acknowledge that this is all happening out here, you would feel sad and, and maybe cry and kind of, you know, ouch, my toe. Stoicism, no, no, don't, don't pay any attention to out here. It's all fake. Pretend like it's not out there. And so any kind of emotion was seen as a, an error in judgment. It was, it was seen as validating out here, and this is, isn't right. So what you had was an entire civilization that walked around not feeling nothing. They wouldn't be happy. They weren't sad. And they certainly didn't care about anything out here. This is where Jesus came into. This was, this was the feeling. This was the, the sense. This is what was going on emotionally in Jerusalem, in that area where Jesus walked. Now, we know that God is love. And Jesus came into this world, his son, carrying his very attributes into this world. So, therefore, we know that when Jesus came into this world, love came into this world. But what was going to happen? What was that going to look like in the midst of all of this this darkness, in the midst of all of this craziness going on? What was God going to look like walking around on earth day to day? What was it going to look like? I'll tell you what it was going to look like. He was going to paint the town with a whole new way of going about things. Let's take a look at one of his, just a few snapshots of a day in the life of Jesus. Would you with me? Uh, Turn to Matthew 29, verse uh, 20, verse 29. Matthew 20, verse 29. This is just another day in the life of Jesus. He's walking along. Let's go ahead and read this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting on the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. But the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. See, this is how the world functioned then. Get out of it. If you are a problem, if you have an issue, we don't don't know what to do with you. We don't care. We have no feeling. You need to be quiet. The crowd rebuked them. But they shouted all the, loud, all the louder. I don't know about you, but if I were blind and Jesus was walking by and everyone was telling me to shut up and they don't care about me, I would start screaming really loud. And they did. They shouted all the, Lord, all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped. He called to them, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. At this moment, the crowds are moving. We have a a timetable to keep. You have to be at this place and that place. There's so much going on, Jesus. We don't care about a couple of blind people. We got big things to do. Those blind guys are just bugging me. Jesus stopped. This is how Jesus does. Jesus stopped. He had compassion on them. The King James Version said he was moved with compassion. 
moved with compassion. Wait, you're not supposed to feel anything because to feel means to acknowledge that this is all going on out here. But Jesus being the very essence who God is comes in and he's showing us something about the heart of the father. The heart of the father does not brush individuals aside. The heart of the father can hear the cry of even one in the middle of a crowd. Even one in the middle of a crowd. The the heart of the father can hear that. And he was moved with compassion. I love that phrase. The NIV doesn't do it right. Just to have compassion. No, he was moved with compassion. The word compassion there, now you all laugh at me, so just give me a second here. It is splagnizomai. Splagnizomai. Something along those lines. Splagnizomai. Say that with me. Splag. We need to put that to a tune or something. But the true meaning of that is that a gut-wrenching move. Have you ever seen something that has given you a gut-wrenching, oh, that's what Jesus had when he heard these people call. He was moved with compassion. Jesus had compassion on them and he touched their eyes and immediately they received sight and followed him. Moved with compassion. So what's the difference between compassion and love? Because we're supposed to be talking about love today, but I'm getting off on compassion. Well, the deal is, is love is kind of this overarching, wonderful, affectionate feeling that we have for people, that, that God has for us. It's a deep, abiding love, a deep, abiding grace and mercy that we have for other people. But compassion is a facet of love that is incredible. Compassion is the facet of love that sees the need in someone. And and it develops and it, it elicits this feeling of what's called sympathy or empathy. It's the thing that moves us when we see something, someone in need, someone with a trouble, with a problem, with something, some uh, suffering of some sort. And it's the thing inside of us, the part of love that calls on us to acknowledge that and act. Compassion is only compassion when you are moved to do something. Otherwise, it's not compassion. And we're going to find with every single one of these that I show you, you're going to, when Jesus is moved with compassion, something happens. Something happens. Jesus bucked the business. He bucked the crowd. He bucked the clamor. He let it all aside, and he heard the cry of a suffering one. And he had compassion. He was moved. Flip over now to, uh, let's, let's look at Matthew 9.35. Matthew 9.35. Another day in the life of Jesus. Just hanging out. 
He went through all the towns and villages, Jesus did, in verse 35 of chapter 9. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Wouldn't you just love to be at that conference? I think that's the one I'm signing up for. Hallelujah. Healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds... When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Or once again, as the King James says, he was moved with compassion. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. God knows how important it is for us as humans to have covering When he looked out and he saw the masses, he saw a group. He did not see just a faceless group. I think when he looked out, he saw the one that had no father. I think he looked out and he saw the one that had no mother. I think he looked out there and saw the one that had no pastor. He saw the ones that were lost. They didn't know which direction to go. They, they were lost in their souls. They were lost in their purpose. They were lost. He saw individual faces and his heart stirred and his, his inner gut was moved because he knows that humanity desperately needs leadership. Humanity desperately needs fathers and mothers and leaders and coverings and pastors to encourage and to lift and to direct. And a a society without those is a society that's lost, is a society that will never be able to make its, its way through life in a good way. And Jesus' heart was moved with compassion on this. He felt heartbroken over this. And he cried out. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. What he was doing there was engaging and instigating and birthing an army that was about to be brought forth. With his death and resurrection and ascension when the church was born. That's what he was doing right then. Go to Matthew 15 verse 29. Here's another day in the life of Jesus. Jesus left there, verse 29, and went along the Sea of Galilee... Then he went up on the mountainside and sat down, and great crowds came to him, bringing the lame and the blind and the crippled, the mute, and others. And he laid them, they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speak and the crippled made well and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. And Jesus called his disciples together, and he said, I have compassion, or I am moved with compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or they will collapse on the way. Jesus was moved now, this time, with compassion for the physical needs of humanity. Moved with compassion. Gut-wrenching. These people. If I don't feed them, if we don't feed them, if you don't feed them, they will faint with hunger. But master, we don't have anything. Oh, yes, you do. You got a little bit, don't you? 
Well, yeah, Master, we have a little bit, but that's for me and, and him and her. Uh, but, you know, no, come on, bring what you've got. Lay it before my feet. Let's pray over this thing. Let's multiply it and feed the masses. Isn't that a better day than going in the corner, sitting down and eating your little crumbs yourself, hiding from everyone? Have you ever done that? When I was pregnant with Sterling, I always hid candy bars in the cupboard. And I'd practically climb in the cupboard to eat it because all the other children would want them if, I, if they knew that the, what I was doing it wouldn't be good. No, bring what you have. Lay it before the Father. Pray over it, multiply it, and then feed the masses. Wouldn't you go home feeling a little better about life if you were involved in that? Jesus is laying before us the heart of the Father and the way he loves to work. Mark 1, one more. Let's, let's look at Mark 1, 141. This is a good one. Start with, start with verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Filled with compassion once again. Boy, this man was busy being filled with compassion. It was something that he allowed to stir in his heart on a regular basis. Jesus, filled with compassion, moved with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Now, wait a, wait a, wait a just a moment. We're talking leprosy here, God. Leprosy was the anathema of the entire culture. Leprosy was something they didn't understand how or why, but if you touched a leper, if you were around a leper, you got leper. Rusi. Rusi. Sorry, people. Sometimes my brain and my mouth do not communicate. They don't get along. And they, <laughs> leprosy. Oh, you just didn't do it. But being moved with compassion, it required Jesus to do something, to reach out and to go and to do, because compassion requires action. There was a young lady in the 1600s. Her name was Catherine. She loved God. She laid her life down for the Lord. She served God constantly with everything she had. She cared for the sick and she gave, her, gave alms to the poor. She did all sorts of crazy, wonderful things. There was a woman one day that called upon her for help. And she came to the house. And when she walked in the house, it kind of smelled yucky. didn't smell nice. She walked in. And this woman was laying there. She had infection, open sores all over her body. No one would touch her. Catherine came in. She was moved with compassion. She looked at that woman and had to decide, is it a wound I'm looking at or is it a child of the living God that I'm looking at? Is it a wound that I'm looking at, weeping and sores and mess and revolting yuck that I am looking at? Or is this one that Jesus died for just as much as he died for me? She had to overcome something. She had to overcome the fact that this person sitting here was revolting to her flesh. And pardon me if this is gross, but what this young lady did, and I just feel like it is so Incredible, this young lady went up to the woman and stood there before her and reached out and grasped her wounds and held her wounds, overcoming 
every bit of flesh that was in her that wanted to revolt and run and maybe judge and, and pretend like it wasn't there. But she held those wounds until the love of the Father overwhelmed what she was feeling. And she began to weep for this woman. Giving, 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 giving. Amazing. And this is what God does. God reaches out. It, this, is, this is showing what his, his mercy and his whole character is like. He doesn't turn from the ugly. He doesn't turn from the awful. He turns to it, runs to it, and grasps it and holds it. Jesus was starting a righteous re- revolution it was completely against what humanity had been doing and felt like doing the whole time. Jesus started a righteous revolution. And it bucked the way that things were done. It challenged it with a thought process contrary to popular opinion. You don't walk away. You don't silence. You don't pretend like it's there. You embrace it and you have a move and a shift inside and you act. He acted in a facet of love that had been dormant in humanity. And that facet of love is called compassion. Jesus took God's love to the streets. And he actually touched the masses. He wasn't ignoring the masses. He actually walked the streets and touched the masses. He incited the righteous rebellion that you find yourself in today. You might not know it, but when you accepted Christ, you signed up for the righteous rebellion. You signed up to change the insides of you so that God can shine in and on and through you. You are a part of the righteous rebellion now. God is a hands-on God. He is not a separate God. He is not a faraway God. The Romans in that day believed in all the paganism and the pagan gods hated, hated humanity and always be trying to bug them and pester them and send a hurricane or an earthquake just to, you know, shake them up a little bit. And, but that's not God. Our God is a hands-on God, hearing the individual cries of people, caring about their physical needs, and and willing to to reach out and touch even the, the ugliest mess we could make. God is a hands-on God. And this righteous rebellion continues to be fueled by the very thing that started it. And if we lose the fuel, we will lose the fire. Let me just say, you, you're, you're not getting it quite yet. Say it again. The righteous rebellion continues to be fueled the very, by the very thing that started it. And if we lose this fuel in our lives, the fire will go out. The fire will go out. Let me tell you some more stories, Okay. From the time of Christ to today, there have been tragedies and terrible, terrible things that have gone on in society and with humanity. 
And the love of Christ has had to survive every single one of them. And wherever the love of Christ is allowed to shine and move and be affected through his church, it has become an amazing moment. Let me read to you a few things. In AD 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. In 251 and 266, at the height of what was, became known as the Plague of Cyprian, the Bishop of, Bishop of Carthage, 5,000 people a day were said to be dying in Rome. Two-thirds of Alexandria's population perished. Pagan Rome was completely ill-prepared to help with the sick and deal with a, deal with a mass death. Since pagans had no belief in immortality and stoicism demeaned any kind of heartfelt compassion, the plagues were meaningless and cruel. The best of the Greco-Roman scientists knew no way to treat the epidemic other than to avoid all contact with those who had the disease. They ran away, they hid, they fled. They ran as far as they could get from those who were ill. As they did this, they often evacuated entire towns. In stark contrast to such hopelessness and fear, the Christians showed how great their faith, uh, that even their faith made this life and even death meaningful. Cyprian, for example, almost welcomed the great epidemic of his time, knowing that it was an opportunity for the church to give witness to the hope that was within them. He was so overwhelmed by a sense of confidence that the members of the Alexandrian church were accused of actually thinking the plague was a time of a festival. Instead of fear and despondency, then, the earliest Christians expended themselves in works of mercy that simply dumbfounded the pagans. For them, God loved humanity. In order to love God back, one had to love others. God did not demand ritual sacrifices. He wanted his love expressed on earth in deed and compassion. This love took on practical, concrete forms. In Rome, the Christians buried not only their own, but pagans who had died without funds for a proper burial. They also supplied food for 1,500 poor on daily basis. In Antioch and Syria, the number of destitute persons being fed by the church reached 3,000 a day. Church funds were used in special cases to emancipate the slaves even. The first Christians not only took care of their own, but also reached out far beyond themselves. Their faith led to a pandemic. Pan meaning all, demos meaning people of love. If we lose the fire, the fuel that that burns in the fire of God's very bosom belly that has moved mountains and put him on the cross and, and reached out to humanity, if we lose that, the fire will go out. Pagans could not help but notice the Christians not only found the strength to risk death, death, but through their care of one another, they were much less likely to die themselves. Christian survivors of the plague became immune, and therefore they were able to pass among the afflicted with seemingly invulnerability. Come on. Let's not be those that flee trouble. For fear it might get on us. 
God gives an immunity to those who are willing to get out there and do and go and be. That's good. This way, the early Christians became, in the words of one scholar who is not a Christian, the whole force of miracle workers to help heal the dying. Or as a historian, Rodney Sparks put it, it was the soup the Christians so patiently spooned to the helpless that healed them. During another huge, terrible plague, there was a gentleman by Eusebius who was a historian, and he goes on to say that because of their compassion, the Christians' compassion in the midst of that plague, the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Such actions convinced them that they alone were the pious ones and truly reverent to God. A few decades later, the last pagan emperor, Julian the Apostate, recognized that Christian practice of compassion was the one cause behind the transformation of the faith from a small movement on the edge of the empire to cultural ascendancy. So you know what that that, uh, Roman emperor did? He was a pagan. He wrote a letter to all the pagan priests, and this is what he says. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by our priests, then I think the impious Galileans, those Christians, observed this fact and and they devoted themselves to take the people away from us. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Julian then proposed a law that all pagan priests must imitate the Christians' charity in order to bring about a revival in the paganism. Temples. Come on, people, we got to be just like them because they're winning. How are they winning? They're winning through compassionate hearts. But it says here, it goes on to say that they couldn't do it. Try as they might, those pagan people couldn't do it because they didn't have the love of Christ inside of them. They didn't have the right mindset. They didn't have the source of love inside of them. They couldn't do it. It didn't work. Therefore, he was the last pagan emperor. And this last one that I want to read, I hope I'm not boring you. April 7th, 2016, 10 days ago, a suicide bomber in Lahore, Pakistan, took aim at Christian children in the park of a horrific attack on Easter Sunday that killed 74 people. But what most people don't know is that most of the dead were Muslims. Christian ministries native to Pakistan are reaching out to the bereaved and wounded survivors. At a section of the park for children's rides, the suicide bomber's explosion did not discriminate, tearing apart bodies and leaving survivors devastated beyond beyond words. At least 362 people were injured. Many of those released from hospitals are still nursing broken bones and internal injuries. There are people in the hospitals who are still in critical condition. 150 Muslims are still receiving hospital care along with 50 Christians. 50 of the Muslims are in critical care. The government officials have promised to pay for all of the hospital bills and to to give them aid, but none of it has come through. But... 
indigenous ministries that Christian aid missions assist are reaching into the injured Muslims and the Muslim families who have lost loved ones. They seek to console them and help cover medical costs for the victims regardless of religion. There are Christians today being moved with compassion. Christians today being moved inside of them with compassion today in Pakistan. Right now they are making meals. They are visiting the sick. Those Muslims who are still in the hospitals, it's the Christians that are going in and caring for them and bringing them food and bringing food to their families and helping pay their bills. I don't know about you, but there's still a righteous rebellion living. There, it is alive and well. And the fuel that fueled, the, the very thing that fueled the righteous rebellion that Jesus was leading, the one that goes to the masses and sees them as individuals, the, this, this incredible move of love and compassion that Jesus had continues today. Right now. There are, they talk in there. It is, it is a ministry-wide, church-wide ministry. There are pastors coming together with all denominations. The Catholic priests and the Christian pastors are ministering in those hospital beds next to them, praying for healing, bringing food. Come on. Muslim suicide bombers can't stop us. Plagues can't stop us if we will yield. Let's all stand. God showered his light upon, of compassion upon us. He is a hands-on God. Compassion was Jesus, and you are Jesus now on this earth. Please, I ask you today to rearrange your DNA, your very innermost being. Do not let stoicism live in your life. Do not become hard emotionally towards the sick and the needy and the dying and the hurt and the lost. But you might say to me, Joel, if I do that, I have to feel and I don't want to feel. I I have enough on my plate. I can't feel anything more. I'm overwhelmed. I don't want to be overwhelmed. And I don't want to feel guilty. I don't want any of that. Well, let me tell you something. Compassion is not guilt. Compassion is not meant to make you feel guilty for being not suffering like someone else. Compassion is meant to stir you, to help you, to liven your, your emotions. You see, because you see, God feels and he wants you to be like him. And so then you might say, well, Joel, what am I going to do with the feelings when I'm all finished? You know, when I'm, what am I supposed to do? Okay, I moved. Ah, oh, I moved. What do I do? The very first thing and the very real thing that every single one of you can do is pray. Pray, pray, pray. And if that's all you can do, you have just done everything. I personally have been very, very challenged. Can I just tell you this right now? I have been challenged with the homeless. I, I drive on my, in my car 
and I see them and I see them on the roads and I'm going to be honest. Can I just be really honest with you? I sometimes get mad. I sometimes get critical. I sometimes get judgmental. But that's not how God reacts. I might be right. Maybe they shouldn't have started drugs. Maybe they shouldn't have done that. Maybe they should have lived well in the first place. But you know what? I make mistakes too. I can't feed every one of them. I can't house every one of them. But I can stink and pray for every one of them that the Lord would find them in their misery because they are in misery. Father, forgive me for for being stoic when I see somebody hurting that that I just go, "Eh," because I don't want to expend anything. But, But Father, forgive me. Teach me to love. Just teach me to love. That's the first step is just to feel. Just just. Be willing to feel something. Just be willing to let your gut be wrenched just a hair. And then maybe you'll understand what Jesus feels. Then maybe, 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 maybe we'll start being a little bit, just let, just let it happen. Just let, let, let a little emotion feel. And then pray, 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 pray like crazy for them. And if that's all you do, that's cool. But there will be a time where God gives you an idea, a way to help, a way to do. Don't let guilt step in, though, because guilt is Satan's twist on his compassion. Guilt will make you run from it. Compassion stays and changes. I want you to know you're a part of a righteous rebellion. I want you to know you're a part of a righteous rebellion. And you walking around at your job and wherever you go and whatever you do, you're to paint it. Paint it with the love of Christ. Paint it with the hope of Christ. Paint it with faith and belief for them. Paint the town with who Christ is. Let's all close our eyes. Father God, in Jesus' name, I pray right now over this this body. Lord God, we repent right now of having a hardened heart. Take it out of us. Rip it out of us. Crush it, oh Father God. Throw your hands in the air if this is you. Take my heart, oh Father, and sensitize it again. Just take my heart, oh Father God, and be free to move it. Be free to turn it. Be free, Lord God, to cause me to see as you see, oh Father God. And Satan, I rebuke guilt off of me. I will not walk in guilt, but I will take the move of compassion in my heart and I will interpret that into prayer and into pulling the kingdom of God into their hearts and into their lives in Jesus name, in Jesus name in Jesus name and Father God right now I just pray right now that as these people call out to you and cry out to you that you begin to give us ways to touch, ways to change oh Father in Jesus name In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.